I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we're going slowly through scripture in order to try to bring it to life and also to learn the things of life from its pages. This week we're in one of the most iconic passages of the entire Bible, Genesis 22. In the Hebrew, this is known as the Akedah, and for those who don't know, this name of Akedah comes from the Hebrew word, and it's found in this passage, which is Akad, or bind, or tie. And English is chapter is usually referred to as the binding of Isaac, and this story is perhaps one of the most fundamental chapters in all scripture. And yet, it's also one of the more confusing passages. Because of this confusion, this passage is also one that self-proclaimed skeptics tend to turn to as a reason for why we shouldn't listen to the Bible at all for our morals. And if there's one thing that we've learned from the story of Abraham and Sarah and Gerar with Avimelech, it's that righteousness is not based on morality. Our guilt and innocence mindset rebels at this idea because we've been raised in our culture to believe that guilt and innocence is the best paradigm for viewing life. So, in response to the skeptics, I would have to agree. We should not look to the Bible in order to be a moral people. We should look to Scripture to be a righteous and a holy people. And that means shifting our perspective somewhat from right and wrong to life and death. We have to stop entering into the arguments that the world sets before us and shift the conversation towards the things that truly matter, towards the way that the Bible itself actually speaks. So when we reach Genesis 22, we must recognize that there's something a whole lot more going on than simply acting in a moral manner. There is a relationship-building exercise that's going on here. There is a test occurring, and this is something that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. In some translations, in verse 1, it says that God tempted Abraham. But our theology says that God does not tempt people. Unfortunately, there is in our culture and our language a negative connotation to the word tempt. Temptation is an enticement towards sin in our understanding. But Old English didn't have this connotation with the word tempt. Tempting was to put something through a trial or a test. Our English word tempt comes from the 12th century Latin word temptare, and this word means to feel or try out or to attempt to influence or to simply test. A variant of the word tentare, which means to handle, to touch, to try, and also to test. This word was used to translate the Hebrew word nasa, or nun samek he, which has the exact same meaning. This isn't the nasa nun sin he, which means to lift up. It's a completely different word, completely different letters within the word, but they sound very, very similar. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance defines it in this way. It's a primitive root, which means to test, and by implication, to attempt, to adventure, assay, to prove, tempt, or try. So when we read this passage, we need to understand that God is not tempting Abraham towards sin, but rather God is trying Abraham as a blacksmith will test his final product. And we see more examples of this language all throughout Scripture. Exodus 16.4 says, And Hashem said to Moshe, 
See, I am raining bread from the heavens for you, and the people shall go out, and they shall gather a day's portion every day, in order to try them, whether they will walk in my Torah or not. In Deuteronomy 8.2, And you shall remember that Hashem your God led you in all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to test you, to tempt you, to know what is in your heart, whether you guard his commands or not. Judges 3.1, And these are the nations which Hashem left to try Israel by them, all those who had not known all the battles in Canaan. And on and on. We'll find that type of language all throughout Scripture. So what we find here is God is not attempting to entice Abraham to sin, but rather he is testing Abraham to prove his worth and his value as a tool in his hands and for his purposes. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're constantly facing choices such as this in our own lives. Do what God wants or, alternatively, sin. In this way, the tests of God are in a way a temptation as we think of temptation, because our own desire is to do the things that are easy, to take the path of least resistance. The, the truth is that the path of least resistance is usually the way of sin and death. The path of God is usually the hard choice, the, the choice that will cost you, and that you will have to constantly remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. The path of God is one where you keep your eyes on God and on His Word, and you kind of ignore the circumstances of life that surround you. In this chapter, this truth is brought to the forefront for us to examine. Because Abraham is told to do something, but inherent in that command is a choice. So how does Abraham handle this temptation? How does he handle the test? Well, let's read this chapter, and then we can discover his response, and then we'll speak on this a bit further. Genesis 22 and it came to be after these events that Elohim tried Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son now, your only son, Yitzhak, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as an ascending offering on one of the mountains which I command you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Yitzhak his son, and he split the wood for the ascending offering, and he rose and he went to the place which Elohim had commanded him. And on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes, and he saw the place from a distance. So Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, while the boy and I go over there and worship, and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the ascending offering, and laid it on Yitzhak his son. And he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and the two of them went together. And Yitzhak spoke to Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, See the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the ascending offering? And Abraham said, My son. Elohim does provide for himself a lamb for an ascending offering. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place which Elohim had commanded him, and Abraham built an altar there, and placed the wood in order. And he bound Yitzhak his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. But the messenger of Hashem called to him from the heavens, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on your boy, nor touch him, for now I know that you fear Elohim seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes, and he looked, and he saw behind him a ram caught in a bush by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered it up for an ascending offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Hashem Yireh, as it is said to this day, on the mountain Hashem provides. And the messenger of Hashem called to Abraham a second time from the heavens, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Hashem, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
that I shall certainly bless you, and I shall certainly increase your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sands which is on the seashore, and let your seed possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Then Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up, and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. And it came to be after these events that it was reported to Abraham, saying, See, Milcah too has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uts his firstborn, and Booz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Chazo, and Pildash, and Yidlat, and Betuel. And Betuel brought forth Rivka. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reuvma, also bore Teva, and Gacham, and Tachash, and Macha. So if you've spent any time at all on the planet Earth, you've experienced a time when you wanted to do something that you knew that you shouldn't do. Question, were you able to stop yourself? Or did you just go ahead and do what you wanted anyway? Uh, circumstances arise and they cause you to make this choice constantly. So let's take it one step further. Have you ever been asked by someone in authority to do something that you didn't want to do? Did you do it without complaining? Did you do it right away? That's the difference between a temptation and a test. Temptation is the desire to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Testing is being asked to do something that you don't want to do by an authority. Not necessarily that you shouldn't, but that you don't want. Do you simply have it your way or do you obey a properly placed authority? Back in Genesis 3, we looked at verse 6 and we examined the pattern that's present in this verse. Adam and Eve in the garden. A serpent enters the scene and begins to tempt Eve, and he asks her questions, questions that begin to cast doubt on the command that Eve knew. More importantly, the serpent asks questions that cast doubt onto God's motivation and his desire to see them thrive. So how does Eve respond? She begins to entertain these questions. She examines the matter for herself, and she comes to her own conclusion despite what the word of God was that was handed down to her. She goes to the tree, to the source of the command, and begins to discern and define for herself the seeming truth. The pattern that is defined in verse 6 is found in the occurrence of the words, See, good, pleasant, eyes, desirable, took and gave. And we looked at that when we were there. And when we were in this chapter, we examined nearly 30 times that that pattern is repeated in Scripture, and we saw that series of words and ideas, and it gave us a pattern of being tempted to sin. And as we examined the pattern, I pointed to two places in Scripture that provide a counterpoint to this pattern. Two times that the character in the story does not give in to the pattern of temptation and overcomes the challenge and is made greater than they were before. One of those times was the temptation of Yeshua in the wilderness. The other counterpoint that we looked at was right here. Genesis 22, the Akedah. This contrast is something that we all need to be able to recognize in our own lives as we read through scripture of temptation and testing from various sources. How do we discern a test from God and a temptation from the serpent? The biggest question that I have is, is there a difference? There are times in Scripture when there does not seem to be a difference between these two. In 2 Samuel 24, 1, it says, And again the displeasure of Hashem burned against Israel and moved David against them to say, Go and number Israel and Judah. But then in 1 Chronicles 21, 1, it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Who was it that tempted David to take a census? Was it Hashem or was it Hasatan? Another case we can look at, Second Chronicles 18, 18-22. And then he said, Therefore, hear the word of Hashem. I saw Hashem sitting on his throne and all the host of the heavens standing on his right and on his left. 
And Hashem said, Who shall entice Achav, the king of Israel, to go up and to fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, and another said that. And a spirit came forward and stood before Hashem and said, Let me entice him. Hashem said to him, In what way? And he said, I shall go out and be a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Entice him and also prevail. Go out and do so. And now see, Hashem has put a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and Hashem has spoken evil concerning you. Hashem sends a deceiving spirit to entice, to tempt Achav to his death. If we look at these examples, we find that we perhaps do not completely understand this concept as we should. Hashem burned against Israel, and he moved David to take a census. And yet Hasatan stood up against Israel and moved David to take a census. Perhaps the point of these passages that seem to be contradictory is to help us to realize that we should not attempt to divine the source of any trial or temptation, but rather we simply need to discern the pattern that the trial takes. We must always realize that regardless of the source, whether from God or from the adversary, there is always a choice before us. A test from God inherently carries with it the option of disobedience and failure of the test. And Israel does this on numerous occasions. Conversely, a temptation from Hasatan also inherently contains within it the option of victory and righteous response, resistance to the temptation that we've all been equipped for with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. The point being that rather than focusing on the source of the tester trial, we must focus solely on our own response to the tester trial. How was it that Eve responded to being tested? Well, she looked with her eyes. She attempted to define good and evil for herself. She defined pleasant and desirable on her own terms. She took what was not part of her realm and made it her own. She then gave that to another and passed on her own definitions as good and right. The contrast that this chapter contains is in how Abraham responds to the test, and that's one of the things that we must learn. Now, we need to pay close attention to this because this is the way that God wants us to respond to our own authorities when they ask us to do something that we don't want to do. Because the chapter begins with a command, go and do. The specific content of the command does not matter at this point in the discussion. The command of authority has been given. Does it make sense? Does it conform to what Abraham desires? Does it even match what Abraham knows about the God he serves? Those are all questions that we would ask ourselves if we were faced with a similar command. But the truth of the matter is that obedience doesn't care about those questions. We're not told if Abraham questions the command. We're only told that he responds to this command by rising early in the morning. The same thing that he did last chapter with Ishmael when God told him to send Ishmael away. And this is the first key to passing a test, but also to resisting temptation. Do not delay, obey. Abraham does not procrastinate. He does not delay. He doesn't pitch a fit. He doesn't cry and moan and complain. He simply does. So when we are asked to do something that we don't want to do, we must not delay to do it. When we want to do something that might be wrong, we need to think back to what we've been told to do and see if we've been told not to do the thing. Delaying to obey gives the mind fertile ground to begin to ask those questions that I was relating just a few moments ago. It gives us time to begin to come up with excuses for why we can't or why we won't obey, or time to become distracted by something else and then simply forget what it was that we've been told to do. When asked to do something, it's on us to obey as soon as we possibly can. And Avraham does this. 
he prepares himself to obey. He gathers all of the things that are necessary to carry out the command, and at the very first opportunity, he begins the task of carrying it out. Secondly, Avraham brings others alongside, and that's vitally important in my opinion. It's highly likely that Avraham did not tell anyone else the specifics of the sacrifice. He only told them that he was going to make a sacrifice. These others then became the guarantee of his obedience. Once they set out on the road to make a sacrifice with others as witnesses, Avraham could not turn back without losing face, without losing honor in their eyes. These men, they became the witness to the fulfillment of the command that had been given. They became his accountability partners. The fact is, we cannot obey in a vacuum. The best way to help yourself to do the thing that you don't want to do is to tell other people what it is you're doing. And then they will help to keep you on task so that you can do it. Don't look at your circumstances. That's the next thing that we need to glean from the story. Because Abraham, on his way, he ignores what he sees with his eyes. He ignores that outside input that feeds his desire to disobey. So what did Eve do? She examined and she looked at the tree and she allowed her eyes to influence what she knew to be true. So what does Abraham do as a counterpoint? Well, in verse 4, Abraham sees the mountain. The fulfillment of this command is now way more real, and yet he continues to follow in the command. Abraham pays no attention to the side of the mountain. He doesn't allow the sight of the utter failure of his own line carrying on into the future to deter him from obedience. In verse 7, it's Isaac that sees the lack of a sacrificial animal. And yet, all of the other instruments of the sacrifice are present. Again, the reality of what God is asking from Abraham becomes more real. And yet, he continues on. He knew the command. He knew the consequences. His faith and his obedience overrode those things. Because we are to live by faith and not by sight. And the thing is, is that Isaac... Isaac knew something was going on. Contrary to popular depiction, according to tradition, Isaac was not a young boy. He was a grown man who could have easily resisted. He was at least 30 years old. Isaac knew of the custom of the neighbors to sacrifice their children. He wasn't stupid. And yet Isaac continued along with him as well, rather than defining for himself what was good, rather than deciding what was desirable in the situation. Avraham simply remained obedient. How many of us would have looked at Avraham and disavowed him at this point? If he had come to us and told us that God had told him to do something that we consider immoral, or what about something illegal? What about something that we know to be contrary to the God we serve? How many of us would have declared him to be deluded or under some sort of evil influence? But Avraham knew what he had been commanded, and he stayed true to the command. And once again, we see that God's commands aren't always about doing the moral things, but rather about doing the right thing. What is moral and what is right are not the same things. Honor and shame do not operate on the principles of morals. So, what does it mean to not look at your circumstances? It means that when you're asked to do something by a proper authority, you don't think about how hard it might be to do it. You don't want to think about what it might cost you to do it. It means that you shouldn't consider whether you even want to do it or not. How hard it is, whether or not you want to do it, these things don't matter when it comes to being obedient. And Abraham goes to the very edge of doing the very thing that, from a human standpoint, 
would completely invalidate everything that God had already promised. Because God had promised that it would be through Isaac that the covenants would continue. And now, God was asking for Isaac to be returned. What thoughts might have gone through Abraham's mind at this point? Was he saying, have I failed? What have I done wrong? Has God now rejected me? What could he possibly be doing? I don't see a way out. Am I perhaps serving the wrong God? Is God not as merciful and compassionate? Is God fickle and erratic? Did I mishear? Did I misunderstand? Does God really love me? Does he really want what's best for me? We aren't told what went through Abraham's mind, and that's good in my opinion because it allows us to fill in the gaps with the questions that plague our own minds when we are faced with a situation that seems to contradict the God that we think we know. Know this, God loves you, even when he asks you to do something that you don't want to do, even when he asks you to do something hard, even when nothing in the world seems to work right, even when he takes your favorite things from you. If you are the seed of Abraham, as we talked about last week, a child of the promise through faith, you will at one point or another in your life be faced with a similar circumstance. There will come a time when what God seems to require of you contradicts what you think God should require of you. A time when God will ask you to give up the things that are most precious to you, even the things that you believe that he has called you to, to give up the means that he has provided to accomplish your purpose. But where is your faith? Where is our trust? Are we so caught up in the way that things look in the here and the now that we will willingly ignore something that God has said? What was the pattern of succumbing to temptation? Seeing the circumstances and then defining for yourself. And what is the way to overcome temptation? Hold tight to the word of God despite the circumstances. Sacrifice itself is a necessity. Sacrifice reveals that you have a higher priority than the thing that's being sacrificed. God will continually test this priority list. He will not allow you to simply pay lip service to him while placing other things as your priority. Because nothing can take the priority of the word of God. Nothing. Not money. Numbers 18, 28 through 29. Thus you also present a contribution unto Hashem from all your tithes which you receive from the children of Israel. And you should give from it the contribution to Hashem, to Aharon the priest. From all your gifts and your presents, every contribution due to Hashem, from all the best of them, the holy part of them. No possession can take priority. Luke 18, 18-23 And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit everlasting life? So Yeshua said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. You know the commands. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Respect your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have watched over from my youth. And hearing this, Yeshua said to him, Yet one you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became intensely sad, for he was extremely rich. No family member can take priority over the kingdom of God. Matthew 19.29 and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. No organization can take priority. Ezra 5.12 But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, and the Chaldeans, who destroyed this house and exiled the people to Babylon. 
At Lamentations 2.6, he has demolished his booth like a garden, and he has destroyed his place of meeting. Hashem has made the appointed times and the Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and he despises kings and priests in his raging displeasure. No country can take precedence. Hosea 13, 8-9 says, Like a bear robbed of her young, I attack them, and I rip open the enclosure of their heart. And yet I devour them like a lion, a wild beast, tear them apart. You have destroyed yourself, O Israel, but your help is in me. And not even any kind of event can take priority over God. Lamentations 2, 6 again spoke of the times and the seasons and the Sabbaths being forgotten in Zion. Hosea 2.11 says, And I shall cause all her rejoicing in her festivals and her new moons and her Sabbaths, even all of her appointed times, to cease. Nothing in our life can take priority over God and His Word. Nothing. No matter how holy something may be, if you make it the priority, if you make it the goal, you will fail to live up to God's priority. No matter how close you are to someone, no matter how much you think that you deserve something. It doesn't even matter if the thing that you are holding close is the product of a miracle given by God himself. Nothing can become an idol before God. And Avraham, Avraham was righteous before God. He was the one who was to bless the world, and this promise was to continue through Isaac. And yet God asked for Isaac's life. And Avraham and his righteousness, and his faithfulness. He trusted God to be true, despite the circumstances. When God asked, Abraham gave Isaac back freely. And then at the last moment, when all seemed to be lost, God provided a way out. This is another thing that we must recognize about how God works. When he is testing you, the solution will come instantly and from a place that you hadn't seen before. We saw this clearly in the last chapter. Ishmael was dying in the wilderness despite God's promise to Abraham that Ishmael would also become a great nation. When all hope was lost, God opened Hagar's eyes to the truth of her salvation being right over there, near at hand. And we see it again in this chapter. Abraham has the knife in his hand with his son tied to the altar, ready to slay his son. And God opens his eyes that there's a goat stuck in the thicket nearby. This theme of deliverance coming at the last minute from a place that had previously been unseen is once again a theme that we see repeated all through Scripture. Let's just go through a few. There's the parting of the Sea of Reeds, uh, water coming from the rock, pheasants coming from the sky, manna coming from heaven, snake on a pole, the fall of Jericho, Gideon's army of 300 defeating the Midianites, Samson blinded and shamed, destroying the Philistines, Sennacherib's army destroyed on the doorstep of, of Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai's proclamation of self-defense to the Jews so that they could resist being wiped out. Yeshua, his past victory on the cross over sin and death. His future victory over the perpetrators of sin and death. And this is simply the way that God works. He will bring you to the end of yourself. And then he will provide a solution to prove that it's not you who made the way out. And it's not nature or coincidence. He will prove that it's him. And this may seem harsh at times or even mean. Why would God bring us to the end of our own strength? No one wants to go there. We all want a plan. We want a means. We want the comfort of knowing. The thing is, is that we have these things. 
We have a plan. It's his plan. We have a means of accomplishing his tasks, and they are his means. The knowledge is in the knowledge of him and his qualities. The problem is, we don't truly believe. To many of us, these things are simply ideas that knock around inside our head from time to time. If we truly believed that the plan is his, and the means are his, and we know him as we should, then we'll live in a constant state of being at the end of ourselves. We'll recognize that our own power and ability mean nothing. All that we have can be given up at a moment's notice. The things that don't matter will all pass away, and the things that do matter will continue on into eternity. The things that are of God, He will ensure that they continue. Abraham faced this reality in a very real way. What mattered most? His son? His only son, it says in the text, but we know that it's not true. It's actually translated best as his unique son. His heir? His legacy? Or was it God and his promises? Avraham's example is that the promise and the command take precedence, even when they seem to be in opposition to each other. The promise is God's domain. Obedience to the command is man's. So what was the pattern of temptation for Eve? She disregarded her domain in keeping the command, and she sought to enter God's domain to seize the promise for herself. In this case, what is God's domain? God's domain is to ensure that the covenant that he's made with Abraham is fulfilled. What is Abraham's domain? Ensuring that he remains obedient to the God who made the promise, the God who had covenanted himself to Abraham. In our own lives, what is our role? Are we to worry about the means of accomplishing God's promises? No, we simply worry about keeping the commands. I've said it before that God has invited us into a partnership to redeem the world, and he has set us here as workers in this field of earth. But now we get a closer view of what that means. We have been invited to assist in the redemption of the world. What is our domain in carrying out this charge? Are we to seek the means of redemption and attempt to make these things happen? No, the means is God's domain. Our domain is simply bearing the word of God into the world. And what is the Word of God? Well, it's the, the written Word, of course, um, but it's more than that. It's the Gospel. It's the one who supersedes the Word. It's the command giver, Yeshua. When we live the Torah, the instruction, the Word properly, we'll look like Yeshua because that's what He did. We will bear God's image to mankind when we do it properly. It's oh so easy to do it improperly, though. People have done it improperly throughout the ages. When we hear God properly and we carry out His will in faith, what is the result? Well, that's what the end of this chapter is about. When we carry on in faith, remaining obedient in the face of certain failure. When we act as Abraham is described as acting in Hebrews 11, certain that God will make a way regardless. I must simply obey in faith that he knows what he is doing, then, then we will be called the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 Know then that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Then we get to be the heirs according to the promise. And what was that promise to Abraham? Through us, 
through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We are God's means for now. We are his means of redemption, for we are the body of Yeshua to the world. But we're also the bride of Yeshua, his covenant partners. And he will one day return to claim his bride and to bring us unto himself. And that brings us to the last part of this chapter. The world at large, a bride from the nations. Covenants had been made with the nations before. In just the last chapter, we read of a covenant made with Avimelech concerning wells. Well, here we get the first glimpse of those outside the household of Abraham being brought into the family through covenant. This whole chapter begins something that we shouldn't miss, but that we will not discuss in depth this week. And it's that Isaac is a type of Messiah. What does that even mean? Well, he's called an archetype. There's a few keys to this in this chapter. One, he's the only son, the unique son. He carried the wood of his sacrifice up a hill. He willingly laid down his life as the sacrifice. A substitute sacrifice was revealed. Resurrection from the dead, according to Hebrews 11. And the foreshadowing of Isaac as a type of Messiah continues beyond this chapter, and so we're not going to stop and focus on it just yet. And we may not even do that in this particular show. Because there are plenty of resources on the internet that dig into this shadow, to one degree or another. Let's just simply be aware of its existence for the moment, and I highly recommend that you go and you study into it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. As we have seen, there's a lot to consider in this chapter. So many things we could look at and we could examine. And yet, the greatest of these, in my opinion, is the ways in which the chapters informs us of our own role when we're in relationship with God. Are we truly willing to give it all up if God simply asks for it? Give up anything and everything we have. Do we have anything in our own life that we hold as more precious than our relationship with God? Are we living within our domain and operating in the scope of the charge that has been given to us? Have I overstepped my boundaries in any way? Have I attempted to take hold of God's domain? Are we listening to and obeying only God's voice? Can we continue to operate in truth and obedience despite what our circumstances reveal? This chapter forces us to confront our own limits of obedience and to at least ask these questions, whether we're ever faced with the decision or not. For every test, every temptation, every trial leaves us with a choice. Do we take the easy way out? Do we doubt God and his power? Do we allow seeming contradictions to shake our faith? Or do we truly know and seek to know God? to his fullest. He will not simply let you sit still and be comfortable. He will give you moments of rest, but he will always push you to your edge. Can you take it? No, on your own you cannot take it. But you can with his help. Because you can do all things through Messiah who gives you strength. We've been equipped to be obedient. We've been given everything that we need to stay true to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We have been granted the power to stay true and obedient. We need to stop looking for the good things to do. For Abraham, sacrificing Isaac 
was not the good thing. It was such a bad thing, such an evil thing. And yet it was what God asked. And so he did it. Because the question is not, are you a good person? Are you a moral person? The question is, are you obedient? Are you an obedient person? Obedient to the covenants, obedient to the commands, obedient to God and to his Messiah. Good and evil, they don't figure into it. Not at all. Life and death. That's the question. So, anyway, that's uh, all I have for today. I know this episode's a little bit shorter than usual, which is kind of shocking because of the depth that this chapter has. But because this chapter's so iconic, so many other people have covered so much of what this chapter contains, and I really don't want to duplicate their work. So, as you go forward into the new week, and as you approach life, as you approach tests and trials and temptations, rather than asking, is this a good thing? Ask yourself, is this a God thing? Because God didn't come to earth to make men good. He came to give men life. And all that you do, everywhere you go, Deresh Chai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.